So it's all come to this. 85 years old, all the money in the world, and nothing but lost regrets behind me. Oh, here it comes, my, my final breath. I suppose I should sum up my lost innocence that led to my moral corruption as an adult in one word. Well, maybe three words. One doesn't feel like enough. I. On. Phil. From Los Angeles, California, it's Hi on Phil! Tonight, we've got Josh Green and Citizen Kane. He said all kinds of things that didn't mean anything on tonight's episode. Well, hello and welcome to another exciting episode of High on Film Sobering Talk About Movies. I'm Chris Maxwell, your host, back for another week. Wow, what a week we have. What a two, you know what? What a two weeks we have planned for you. With David Fincher's Mank set to release this Friday, December 4th on Netflix, we're taking the next two weeks to take a closer look at a pair of films that uh, very well may influence our viewing of his brand new movie. Almost 80 years old, and it's still considered one of the best movies ever made. Episode 259, we're watching Citizen Kane from 1941, directed by Orson Welles, written by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles, uh, with John Houseman, Roger Q. Denny, and Molly Kent, uh, all uncredited contributing writers. And therein lies its only Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, uh, while it did receive eight other nominations, and I believe... Therein also lies the plot of David Fincher's Mank, where, uh, true story, Orson Welles tried to buy Herman Mankiewicz out of his screenwriting credit so that he would have sole credit, and then therefore, I guess, later achieve uh, an Oscar solely to himself. But it didn't happen, and I'm very excited to see this movie to find out how that all played out. Before we go any further, let's get to the man right to my left. He's the podcaster of Disaster, the co-host from The Couch, and the Brad Davis that God gave us. My co-host and friend, Brad Davis. Hi, Chris. Hey, Brad. How's it going today? It's going pretty well, all things considered. All things considered, indeed. Uh, you're excited for Fincher's Mank, right? We've talked about this. I... We have eagerly anticipated this movie. I'm usually pretty excited about anything that kind of connects to the... Citizen Kane verse universe for lack <laughs> okay. of a better, better way to put it. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited for this movie, especially with kind of the early, uh, the early reviews on it are all very, very good. Every year I try to pick a movie that I think is going to win best picture before it ever releases and before I ever see it. I, and this I year. And I applaud you for it. This year, this is my pick, Mank. I, okay. I think it's going to do it this year. It's a weak year, 2020. Fincher deserves an Oscar. I mean, what better than an old Hollywood jerk-off session? Yeah, anytime you have a movie about the movie industry, the Oscars just love it. Yeah, and it's written by David Fincher's dad. Like, come on, tell me that's not a Hollywood story if you if you ever heard one, huh? It, it checks a lot of boxes, for sure. Yeah. Uh, of course, next week, we'll be looking at one of David Fincher's other works, uh, The Social Network, also strangely about uh, 
man who rises to be a billionaire and become a terrible person. But we'll get to that next week. This week, of course, like always, we are joined by a guest. You know him from past episodes of High on Film, like The Cable Guy and Spotlight. He is a very talented writer. Our friend Josh Green returns to the show. Josh, how's it going? Oh, very good. Thanks for having me back, guys. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for doing this. Another great movie on your High on Film resume. Uh, have you ever seen Citizen Kane before today? Uh, yes. I think, well, Citizen Kane probably is every film nerd's first favorite well, maybe second favorite movie after Pulp Fiction um, <laughs> to the point. I think I wrote my uh, my high school English lit thesis on Citizen Kane and came, came up with. I assume you guys researched and that's why you selected me for this. Um, you dug into your, my old high school documents. Yeah, your high school thesis is is well renowned around the film community. Yeah, I had I had keen insights like money can't buy you love and uh, things of that nature. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've loved this movie since, since I saw it in high school. Awesome. How many times would you say you've seen it? Oh man. I'd say in the neighborhood of 10. Oh, oh wow. wow. Okay. I was thinking five ish maybe, but 10. Okay. So you're, I mean, you're almost an expert. I feel like on this film. Well, I mean, you figure, okay. So from age 16 to, to 33, how many times a year, maybe once a year, something like that. Oh, wow. yeah. All right. Every other. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, this movie might be one of the oldest to have a, a spoiler alert to it. Uh, of course, the whole movie uh, is revealed in the final moments. If you haven't seen the film, if you need a quick refresher, we've prepared a trailer. So just beware. There are spoilers in it. Uh, so let's give it a listen. In a world where a media titan can rise in popularity, run for office become disgraced and live out their days in wealthy isolation. One man will become a media titan, rise in popularity, run for office, become disgraced, and live out their days in wealthy isolation. Charles Foster Kane. If I hadn't been very rich, I might have been a really great man. Despite being given away as a child to an airless business tycoon, Kane shows no signs of psychological scarring. Psych. The man's dying words will spark the interest of the entire world. Rosebud? Oh, oh, his uh, dying words. Rosebud. Yeah, I saw that in the Inquirer. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. But that won't stop them from trying. Everyone will be questioned, from his two business partners to his two ex-wives. Gee, without you, I don't know what I'd have done. And when you find out the truth, the twist will slay you. Rosebud, dead or alive, it'll probably turn out to be a very simple thing. From RKO Radio Pictures and visionary director Orson Welles comes the fictionalized story of William Randolph Hearst and his loss of innocence that made him a complete asshole. Not that Charlie was ever brutal. He just did brutal things. Joseph Cotton. Dorothy Cummingore, Everett Sloan, and a 24-year-old Orson Welles. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. The classic story of power and the press. Citizen Kane. You won't have to fight him anymore. It's 
their loss. Mm, there it is, a Hollywood classic. You know, I, I read that it was booed at the Oscars every time one of its nominations was announced. Like, people apparently did not care for this film when it came out. Is that, Isn't that funny? Is that because they hate, like, it seemed like everyone hated Orson Welles. Was that because of him, or? Yeah, it seems like, was he viewed as an upstart from the theater world, and this, you know, a 25-year-old directs and stars in a movie? Um, to say nothing of, uh, like, William Randolph Hearst's campaign against the film. That's true. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of altercations there. Uh, yeah. I just found that so interesting that people would just actively boo it when it's <laughs> obviously a pretty technological marvel for the time. And that just seems, I don't know, a little too steeped in politics for as good of a movie as it actually is. Maybe they didn't get how, maybe it was more, you know, respected after the fact as far as being a technical marvel. Uh, yeah, I believe it's uh, re-released around 1950, and that's where it gains uh, most of its respectability and love. After go. they put it out in color. <laughs> Is that really what happened? No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, holy god, crap. Stunned me. I was like, oh my god, I've never seen a colorized version of this, but I can only imagine what a garbage, garbage cut that must be. What a twist. Yeah. <laughs> well, we might have our own chance to boo it or colorize it or whatever you want, because... And now it's time for Trash... Star. Destroy. That's right. It's Trash Star Destroy. Uh, we'll give you three movies of a similar ilk and ask you to do one of three things to each one of those movies. One film you'll have to trash, which means it's eliminated from existence. One movie you get to star in in whatever role you'd like to take for yourself. And then the third movie then must be destroyed, which means that the only version that has ever existed has been both written and directed by Mr. Michael Bay of, oh, let's say the island fame. <laughs> let's say that. <laughs> yeah, why not? I can't remember which ones I did recently, so who cares? <laughs> I don't think you've done the island recently, so I think you're good. Yeah, I normally just pick a random Transformers movie, but anyway... This being an Orson Welles film, let's do three Orson Welles movies. The movie we just watched, Citizen Kane, uh, is pairing with Rita Hayworth, the lady from Shanghai. And uh, a film we actually talked about uh, only a few weeks ago during our November series, Touch of Evil. So Citizen Kane, the lady from Shanghai, and Touch of Evil, Trash, Star, Destroy. I am going to star in Citizen Kane. The role I'm going to take, obviously the temptation is to take the role of Charles Foster Kane, but man, Orson Welles is so damn good in this movie. Like I know he gets all the credit for directing it, but man, he is acts his ass off in this movie. Um, he gets nominated for best actor. Deservingly so. He is fantastic. Um, so then I think I'm either going to take the Bernstein role or the Leland role. I think I'll take the Leland role. Uh, but then you're taking... Actually, no, I'm going to take the Bernstein role because then I get to act with Joseph Cotton. I get to act with um, Orson Welles. Uh, the Bernstein role is... You get a lot of good lines. You get a lot of... 
good stuff there. So I'll take the role. Yeah, you got a ton of screen time. Yes. Um, and I, and they won't have to make me up as much for <laughs> the old role. Well, uh, maybe not as much as Joseph Cotton, but not uh, as much. I or, think they make you up oh, just about the same as Everett Sloan, right? That dude's not made up too much in his old age makeup. Exactly my point. Uh, it, it would be less time <laughs> in the makeup trailer. Uh, I, I feel good about that. I do. I would love to see your take on the, uh, the lady with the parasol monologue too. I, I appreciate that. I really do. <laughs> Um, so then touch of evil and lady of Shanghai, I admittedly have not seen lady of Shanghai. Uh, I have seen touch of evil, which I think is great. Um, I guess I'm going to give touch of evil to Bay and trash lady of Shanghai. I feel like that's only knowing so much about it. It feels like a natural choice. Um, and knowing touch of evil it plays as well as an orson welles movie can probably play into Bay's hands so that's that's my move okay respectable very respectable thank you josh yeah i mean i i pretty much picked uh the same things as you brad i think i'm gonna star in citizen kane and since you graciously stepped away from the jed leland role i'll take that one um, he I think has... he'd be great that role <laughs> thank you You're yeah, because joseph cotton is the man and i you know like to pretend I'm him. Um, <laughs> he has, he has that great scene with uh, Kane where he, he talks to him about what it really means, what his love for the working man really means and what that would look like when the working man actually organized against people like him. Um, and he gets to be an ordinary old guy who cracks wise and, you know, says stuff to nurses. Yeah. And, uh, and if things go well, maybe I get to act in the third man as well. Um, there you go. Yeah. Trashing. Go on to be in Hitchcock films, all kinds of stuff. Trust yeah. God's got a hell of a career you can snatch right out from under him. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and, and I think you're you're spot on about Lady from Shanghai. I think that one, I mean, it's good. Uh, of the three, definitely the one that, that can be trashed. I think at no point in that film do I believe that Orson Welles is Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and... That's why it's not called the man from Ireland or the man from Belfast. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Um, and and really, I mean, the courtroom scene at the end is cool. And the the Hall of Mirrors shootout is is awesome. But following the plot up to those moments is, can be a little bit of a chore. Um, so that leaves a destroying touch of evil, giving that one to Bay, because just solely to see what he would do with the opening shot. Uh, it would be a thousand <laughs> different shots all right, edited yeah. together. Right. Except for like when the camera goes inside the bomb and like shows the wires and the, what happens when it ticks down to zero. I think he would have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. But there goes that famous log shot for sure. Yeah. Um, and dare I say every scene, every movie with a scene with a hall of mirrors, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lady from Shanghai, Enter the Dragon, uh, Us. Yeah, The Last John Wick had a, had oh, a good yeah, one. Oh, yeah, The Last John Wick. There you go. Future Trash Star Destroy category is there, right there. Is there a Hall of Mirrors scene in Face Off? Mm, I mean, it makes sense that there would be, there, right? Uh, yeah, I hope I, I'm so. I'm like imagining a scene. Uh, I, I, it'll be too, it, it's going to go far, too far down a path. Let's just move on because I'm not even sure. But I feel like there's some point where he's like avoiding where 
Nicolas Cage, Ash Travolta is avoiding the cops and is like going through a hall of mirrors that are getting shot up. But I haven't seen that movie in a couple of years. I don't think that's a hall of mirrors. I think that's just like plates of glass. glass. It's like separating rooms okay. that's being shot. Yeah. I wasn't positive, but either yeah. way. Um, well, guys, I'll tell you. I'm going to resurrect Lady from Shanghai from your trash bins. Uh, I am taking that Orson Welles role right out from him, and I am starting opposite Rita Hayworth and being her romantic interest for that movie, 100%. Uh, I do like that movie a lot, yeah, and I absolutely love Rita Hayworth. Absolutely one of my, I'd say my, the classic movie celebrity crush that I have. Mm. Mine's Grace Kelly. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a real good one, uh, but I then I think I I do kind of fall in line with you guys. I think Touch of Evil's Going to Bay. Just I mean, I did it a few weeks ago. I'm pretty sure, and I think I'm going to do it again because I do think a a bomb and kidnapping at the border <laughs> falls <laughs> easier into Michael Bay's wheelhouse than uh, Citizen Kane does. And yeah, unfortunately, that's trashing Citizen Kane. Wow, <laughs> that's bold. Sounds, well, I will say I. I like this movie. I really do. I have lots of good things to say about Citizen Kane. Um, it's it's probably the one I like the least out of the three of these. I, I, I do have to watch Lady from Shanghai again. Touch of Evil is hands down my favorite Orson Welles movie, though. You like Touch of Evil more than Citizen Kane? Yes, 100%. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lady from Shanghai, I'd have to revisit to really know for sure on that. I remember really liking it at the time. Um, but yeah, Citizen Kane, I do. I, I really like it. But if I had to rank them personally, sorry, sorry, Charles. I love that you're getting rid of such a like uh, advanced film. Like film is going to be set back years because you got rid of it. Yeah, just because I want to try to date Rita Hayworth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's one way to go. Yeah. Hey, we all make our choices. All right, guys. One more trash star destroy category here. Let's do. Newspaper movies. Josh, this should ring quite true to you. You've been on the podcast for another newspaper movie, Spotlight. And that'll be one of the movies we use here today, along with All the President's Men and David Fincher's Zodiac. All the President's Men, Spotlight, and Zodiac. Three newspaper movies to trash, star, destroy. So I think the easiest one for me here was... uh... Unfortunately, you have to trash Spotlight. Um, it's a great movie, but I think these other two are just better enough that, um, you know, Spotlight's got to go. Uh, also, we already have enough Boston movies, so I don't think the world <laughs> would necessarily notice if this one if this one vanished. True. I'm going to star in All the President's Men. And I think I'm going to take the Jack Warden as Harry Rosenfeld role because you get to act with uh, Jason Robards and Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Um, I mean, that would be awesome. And then later in life, you possibly get to play Pops and Dirty Work. <laughs> <laughs> that's your long con with this? Yeah, that's the long dirty? con. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love that so much. What a great choice. Dirty work of all movies. <laughs> I that I enjoyed that movie when I saw it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Pop. Maybe Chris Farley's last uh, on-screen role in Dirty Work? Was he in the trunk at some point of the car? He it's, is. It's either that or Almost Heroes. I think, uh, it, I think yeah. it's Dirty yeah. Work, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good question. 
Um, but uh, yeah, and then kind of for similar reasons as Touch of Evil, I think Zodiac has to go to Michael Bay. Um, you know, the camera just sits so still during those murder scenes that there's not once does it swoop around the car very fast. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, it's very interesting. And, and, you know, instead of listening to, what is it? Hurdy Gurdy Man, it could be uh, Aerosmith playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> All these kids are getting killed by their, their yeah, and, uh, convertible. And instead of being a mechanic, the Zodiac could be alien goo that came down from an asteroid. I like that. I really like where that's going. Uh, unfortunately, I think I'm going to star in Zodiac. I'm going to work with Fincher. I'm going to take Hall's part right from, uh, I'm hit and miss with Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm warming up to him in, in his more recent film roles. I used to not be a fan of Gyllenhaal and over the years he has grown on me in a huge way. I really like him now, actually. Yeah. Nightcrawler was kind of the movie that started making me change my mind. Although, you know, I've never really like hated him. I just eh, never cared for him. Um, so yeah, he's not in Zodiac anymore. I am. And now maybe I get to be in <laughs> Gone Girl or Mank or who knows. Uh, and then just for comedic purposes, I feel like I'd rather see Michael Bay try to deal with the Catholic Church abusing children than... <laughs> oh boy. Whitewater. Oh my God. <laughs> or Watergate, sorry, not Whitewater. Yeah. Uh, just, I'd like to see Michael Bay try his hand at such sensitive material to see if he has any restraint whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, rather than let him take on the Watergate scandal. Um, so unfortunately, yeah, all the president's men, sorry, in the trash. We could just have the first season of Slow Burn now to listen to. Wow. I am both horrified and totally intrigued at the thought of Michael Bay's spotlight. Right? Um, you can't look away. You got to see it. That's yeah, a- I'm almost terrified to think about what that means totally terrified but would i watch it i yeah i would <laughs> i mean would i pay for it probably not but i if it was streaming somewhere i'd watch it um yeah i guess for me i would probably star in zodiac as well it's a movie that when i first saw it i didn't even like it and then recently i read the script and then rewatched the movie i was like oh damn this movie is pretty People call it a masterpiece. I, I don't go that far with it, but man, it is a fantastic film that is so well done. Um, so I think I would star in that. Do I take the Gyllenhaal role? I guess that's the move. I, I, I'm, I'm debating between either taking his role or Ruffalo's role. Um, you took Gyllenhaal's role. I'll take Ruffalo's role. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, Brad Star and Zodiac with me. Yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> you, me, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll have a blast. It'll be really fun. Um, so yeah, I'll star in Zodiac. Uh, All the President's Men. I'm sorry, what was the third? Spotlight. Oh, and Spotlight, of course. I guess I'm going to go against you, Chris, even though I'm... <laughs> the temptation is tough to resist. Uh, I no, will... Kidding. I will give all the president's men to Bay, which it would be interesting to see him handle uh, Watergate to a certain extent, at least from the standpoint of what does Michael Bay make that? It would be so over the if, for a movie that doesn't really have, you know, uh, quote unquote action per se. It would be interesting to see how he handles that. And then I'm unfortunately trashing Spotlight just because I. 
I don't think I can do that to such a uh, important story. Put something like that into Michael Bay's hands feels a little, a little reckless. I respect what you're doing, Chris, but it feels a little reckless. I'm the just real like, story is still out there. It's <laughs> yeah, but nobody not been dramatized. It feels reckless. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, at that, we are going to take a break, and we'll be right back with more Citizen Kane, more Josh Green, and more High on Film right after this. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the Citizen Kane and the other side of the wind. An aging director makes a movie about a washed up director played by a retired director in the final film from Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. Half mockumentary, half art house spoof, all incomprehensible. Move over, boyhood. This movie spent more than 40 years in production and was finally released in 2018. It's as much about Orson Welles as Citizen Kane is about William Randolph Hearst. 40 years in the making, his final film, The Other Side of the Wind. And you'll see to it that it'll have the finest microphones and quality noise-canceling headphones? I assure you, he'll have the best podcast equipment money can buy. You're doing this for him. You have to remember that. I keep telling myself that. Would you rather we do this tomorrow? No, I want to get it over with. I've had his computer bag packed for a week. That's fine. All that's left is for you to sign here. Chris, want to come in here for a second, buddy? Oh, Brad, they have the steepest hill out back. It's so cool. Perfect for sledding. Well, you're going to have to go sledding later. I arranged for you to go on a long trip with this nice woman here. Awesome. Where are we going? Des Moines, Tempe, San Antonio. Wow. Uh, are we going to take a plane? You better believe it, champ. We're going to take a big private jet plane with lots of snacks and a big screen TV. Are you freaking serious? Oh, well, let's go already. Come on, Brad. Brad? Brad's not coming with us, Chris. What do you mean? Uh, Brad, what is she talking about? I can't go. But don't worry. You're going to have such a good life. You'll have the biggest podcast studio to play around with. It's going to be great. And, I mean, Tempe, Arizona. But, Brad... Come on, Chris. Time to go. Uh, but I don't want to go. Oh, I like this podcast studio. No. No! And we're back, high on film, right in the middle of Citizen Kane, because we are so damn excited to see David Fincher's Mank out this Friday. But for now, let's dig into the masterpiece at hand. Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. It's time for scene work. We rank the three best scenes and the three worst scenes of this film. And because we're an optimistic podcast, we will start things out optimistically with... Best scene. What's the best scene, or shall I say, three best scenes in Citizen Kane? We'll do uh, start at three, go to two, go to one. Feel free to chime in whenever you'd like. Does anyone have a strong sense of where their three scenes sit? So I guess my number three scene, best scene, it, it's initially I put it in my worst scene list and then oh. thought about it a little bit and changed my mind. Um, it's the scene where 
where uh, he where Kane meets Susan on the street after he gets mud kicked up on him. Um, initially, I, you know, I, I watched it and Susan in that when he meets her, she has a toothache and she feels a little bit like a manic pixie dream girl who instead of instead of introducing him to the shins introduces him to like nasally opera um, <laughs> the shins at the time yeah but but the more the more i thought about it it's like that scene pretty much comes at the midpoint of the film and it's one of the rare moments uh where where charles kane feels like he has some kind of a chance at happiness um in meeting this everyday woman this person who kind of represents you know because he before that, Jed, Jed Leland says that he refers to Susan as a cross-section of the American public. This, this idea um, of what a, the kind of person he would have been had he been allowed to you know, stay with his, his parents in Colorado. Um, and I, I also chose that scene because when he meets her, he's standing there and he mentions that he's on his way to get his his late mother's things. So really he's on his way to get Rosebud and then he meets Susan Alexander instead. And that sort of kicks off the trajectory of the second half of the film. Yeah. Well, he eventually does go and get his stuff from his mom's house because funny enough, he has this sled the whole time. Spoiler. Right. He has this sled yeah, the right. whole time in his basement or whatever it is. Like, yeah, just in crates. I, 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 right. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, we could talk about, I mean, yeah, it's more about him pining for his lost innocence than actually being like, where the fuck's my sled? I don't think he's right. actually wanting a sled to go sledding. <laughs> oh man, that would be, that would rule though, if that's what the movie was about. As, an Charles, old guy. <laughs> as Charles Foster Kane passed away, a gentle snow hit the ground and all he wanted to do was go sledding one last time. Yeah, we basically get the scene from Home Alone where he sleds down his own stairs. Yeah. <laughs> that's how the movie ends. Yeah. Cut to black. Hey, that's, yeah, no spoiling for milk in it, huh? Right, yeah. So yeah, and then uh, the number number two for me was the, was his, his speech when he's running for governor. Um, I mean, he's so pow, he's fully Charles Foster Kane in that scene. And it's right before things kind of shift downward for him. Um, so you see his power and also interestingly, you see really the only stuff that you get in terms of his relationship with his son you see his son in the crowd with their mom. And then after the speech, he kind of holds up Junior for a pho- like a, a photograph. And then when the photographers are gone, he just like drops the kid. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, you don't see how he relates to his child at all. And you know that the kid dies off screen in a car accident. But it doesn't seem, you know, you, you never see how that affects him. And so I thought that choosing to put the kid in that scene was... Uh, was sort of a an interesting moment. It's a great scene. I mean, that was in my rankings of top scenes. That was like right on the borderline of. A, a, I had a handful of scenes where I was like, "Man, any of these could be in the top three. and that was definitely one of them. Especially the yeah. big poster behind the big like election poster behind him is now kind of iconic in a way. It's it's a great scene. He's fantastic. Yeah, it's, 
Right. And, and in the scene, you know, he, he talks about things which we never see in real life, which is threatening to jail his political opponent. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. And yeah, then I, it's insane. Like you said, I mean, everything old is new again, right? The, right. the political playbook has been the same for as, as long as it's existed. Right. I mean, they're the, 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 politics this movie are just chef's kiss of like oh he's a communist he's a fascist not that you know they're saying them both about charles foster kane in this movie just different side just different opponents uh i actually do think there's fascists uh, today right <laughs> well and any anyone that charles kane uh disagrees with he refers to as an anarchist yeah and he has oh. the two newspapers for his election the one where he wins and it says kane wins and the other where he loses and then alleges voter fraud yeah it's yeah insane it's- yeah um but i digress oh no yeah well yeah the other thing that's great about that scene towards the end of it 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 reprises the charlie kane song that we hear earlier which brings me to my number one which is the charlie kane song (laughs) (laughs) i'm so glad you picked this (laughs) i i mean the song rules I wish I had a song written about me that had lines like, I bet you five, you're not alive if you don't know his name. Um, it also, it's that, it's that moment in these rise and fall movies where you just wish you could live there longer because everything seems to be going well. You know, Charlie just bought his newspaper staff. He's just a young, fresh out of college kid who wants to, who wants to stick it to the rich, but also try to start wars uh, with his yellow journalism. So yeah, it's that, uh, it's that things are good, but let's cut to Jed Leland and see that he maybe doesn't feel that way scene. Um, yeah. And I mean, the choreography and the camera work, the angles and the deep focus in that scene are just so good. And I, and I love that Leland-Bernstein exchange where like Bernstein's kind of all caught up in the pomp and frill of it. And Leland's like the only one there who's kind of uh, the voice of reason is like, this is, you can see it go into his head. You can see like foreshadowing the downfall, which is just structurally great. And uh, it's a fantastic scene. That's a great choice. Brad, you want to go next? Sure. Um, so for me, all of Josh, Josh's scenes were basically in the running for me, but uh, my number three scene is actually the scene between Charles Foster Kane and his first wife. And it's basically a montage of seeing their marriage fall apart that takes place just over their like breakfast table or, or dining room table every day. And you're seeing just quick cuts of them being happy together and then slowly the slow dissolve of their relationship uh, where they become more uh, uh, short with each other, obviously like grow to dislike each other. And then you evolve to the end where they're not even talking to each other. He's reading the paper. And I, I just thought for what his first marriage is and for the efficiency of showing an entire relationship over the dinner table, which is, you know, the place where family happens for lack of a better term. And then to just see it all play out that way, I thought was pretty brilliant uh, to show how a relationship falls apart. And it's edited to look like it's continuous. 
Uh, but the only reason you know it's times passing is because they change costumes and you can see him getting like a little older. But yeah, it's it's a great scene. Yeah, yeah. and you see uh, and you see it passing over time because you see the relationship changing through each. Right. I mean, there must be I don't know ten different takes or ten different scenes within that montage of it, and I, I think it's a brilliant job of throwing uh, of showing the uh, showing a relationship just falling apart. Yeah, that's a great choice. You, There's also, like, I love at the end, like you mentioned, he's reading the paper and she's reading the paper that he doesn't own <laughs> at the, at the end of point. that scene. Great point. And like you all, that's, there's also that line uh, where she's like, people will think. And then he has, he has that awesome line, what I tell them to think. And it's yeah, like, it's great. Yep. Uh, number two for me is the, it's kind of the back-to-back scenes, but the first time I ever saw this movie was in a film class in college. And the one scene that they stopped, one of the main two scenes they stopped on to really like pick apart and show us was the scene when, um, Charles is a child playing in the snow and his parents are giving him to this rich tycoon to be his heir and obviously the like for me as a 21 year old whatever that was however old i was i didn't understand camera work that way didn't understand if i would have just watched that scene on my own without anybody telling me at that time i would have never understood how brilliant it was and how um uh, you know ahead of its time it was to see him playing in the snow to pull into the house to see that to see that whole uh interaction take place and to still have uh be able to see charles playing in the in the background and then on top of it all it is the catalyst to everything charles does which is his life his life was ripped away from him his mother most importantly was ripped away from him and then the scene right afterwards when he's being taken away and he's unsure why it's happening not sure why his mom's not coming with him i mean that scene sets up it's it sets up everything in the movie and it is also you know one of the reasons this movie is considered to be so ahead of its time yeah that shot blows me away every single time i watch this movie when you start outside and the camera just pulls back and you come in through the window across the whole house and then sit down at the dining room table with uh charles's mother it's and she is just devastated about giving her son away and then yeah the the next scene when they actually do it and then uh kane's dad is there like uh trying to coax him into going by like this this really jolly exciting uh, attitude about hey you're gonna take a great trip and see all these fun cities uh it's just and it's uh just absolutely devastating um a devastating emotional scene to come after one of the best technical scenes in the film it's it's absolutely outstanding yeah and for it to um this is probably the third time i've seen this movie and i never really caught before that the father has obviously abused him so the mother's not only doing this to help Charles's chances in life, but it's also to get him away from the father, which kind of makes, to me, the 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 whole relationship with his mother that we barely see on screen, but we obviously see play out, hit me so much harder this time than it really did before. That she was like not only trying to give him a better life, but also trying to protect him. Um, played great for me. 
Uh, and then the number one scene, which is, uh, it's kind of a cheat in a way, but it's just the rosebud element of the movie. It, like, every, people who have never seen this movie before know what rosebud is. Like, the idea of planning this, uh, it, it's the sled, like, that whole, the whole way it plays out, it's what the whole movie is focused on, is such a brilliant plot device and is executed so perfectly, I think. Um, and it makes the whole, uh, you know, it's the twist at the end that nobody saw coming. And when you see the sled burning and with the, with the rosebud name on it, and it's all reverts back to his mother again, it's, it's incredible. I, I like it, it really is the first, I mean, maybe not the first, I don't know movie history well enough to say, but the first time where you have such a plot device that just floors you like that, or at least as far as I know, it's, it, I, I had to give it some props. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if it's like the best early use of the MacGuffin that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because they are, they, I rewatching this movie, they put sleds all over the first half hour of this movie too. Really? Like yeah. Well, the, there's um, in the newsreel, I think one of the senators when talking about Kane talks about, um, he tells a story about us getting a hit with a sled. Uh, Thatcher's first gift to Charles um, when he gets him is, is another sled. Like they say sled a few more times sprinkled in there. It's crazy how many times they're talking about sledding in the first bit of this movie without, you know, I never even noticed it until this time. And I was like, how many times do they bring up sleds? And then, you know, at the end, of course, there it is. It's just such fantastic layering and, and, and smart screenwriting. And I, I, before I saw this movie, I already knew what Rosebud was. Like I knew that. And I only wish that I, you know, was in 1941 and was able to see it and be like, I get to the end, like, I still don't know what this Rosebud thing is. And for the sled to play out that way and for it to go back to that scene, it's it's amazing. What Was your first uh, exposure to the concept of Rosebud as the money cheat code in The Sims? Because that, that's <laughs> what it was for me. You type in Rosebud and then it, get, it basically you get to build Xanadu because you have like the unlimited. Oh, that's, that's smart. That's really smart of them. Yeah, I think funny enough, my first introduction to rosebud might have been animaniacs i think they do a citizen Kane bit um either that or there's the simpsons episode where mr burns wants bobo his stuffed teddy bear and it starts exactly like citizen Kane, where he's playing in the snow and his parents (laughs) give him away uh it's it's really good it's it's a great episode of the simpsons um but between both of those it's it's i'm pretty sure it's animaniacs because they went more deeper into old hollywood than with specific references and I feel like a lot of the Looney Tunes that I ended up seeing as a child, but it could have been there too. Um, for me, uh, my third scene, number three for me is what we talked about, Brad, uh, when his parents give him away, the camera pulling through the window, the devastation of his mother, giving him away in hopes of uh, a richer, better life. Just, just fantastic. Maybe the most emotional scene of the movie for me. Um, in a movie that doesn't, you don't feel that emotional pull as much as maybe you could or should. Yeah, I, why I had to trash it and trash or destroy. I don't have a lot of emotions connected to this movie. It is, it's very cerebral, but not. There's not a lot of heart to it. At least, I know for me. Uh, number two for me is the final scene. 
I love, uh, of course, Rosebud being burned, but I love the reaction of everyone there who's there to catalog or destroy or pack up. And they're just like, well, I guess we'll never know. And it's literally losing, just giving up on finding the, the poetic sadness of Charles Foster Kane that we actually get to know. And they're just like, well, I guess we'll never know. Crazy old kook. He went crazy anyway. He said a lot of crazy, stupid stuff. And that's it in for Charles Foster Kane's memory in that world. And I think that's, you know, in its own way, a very poetic, sad, heartbreaking ending, even for this monster to just like, well, no one ever even understood him. Right. Hold on to the statues, throw the, throw the sled in the fire. Exactly. Uh, and I do like when they pull out and it looks like, the final scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark I was with gonna, all the boxes. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, are you going to Raiders of the Lost Ark? I assumed you were. So, yes. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course yeah. you are. And number one for me is the speech for Governor. Uh, like, just iconic, iconic shot. Uh, great speech. Uh, the, the Charles Foster Kane song. So much fun. I... It's so optimistic and, and hearty. It's just, I don't know. It's such a great scene and it, I, I just love it so much. And uh, Wells' performance, I should say, is really the the star of it there. And he is, he's he's hammering away at his role at Kane here uh, at all ages too. I can't believe this dude is 24 when he's filming it. He looks, the, the makeup on this, not one of the Oscar noms they got, but the makeup on this, especially for Charles Foster Kane and for Bernstein is awesome. We can talk about the other person who gets old age makeup in the next segment. Yeah, his the way and the way he plays every age for a twenty five year old to be playing, you know, a, I don't know how old, forty year old, fifty year old, whatever. He encapsulates it perfectly every time. Like I believe every age he's playing constantly. Yeah, when when he's uh, when he's trashing the room after Susan leaves, he kind of he plays it with that like stiffness, like maybe he has a little bit of arthritis. Like um, Robert De Niro trying to throw a gun into the river in The Irishman. <laughs> we we didn't even talk about it. I thought the same thing during that scene. I was like, this is like De Niro, except this fits, and the De Niro thing throwing the gun into the river made no sense because he's supposed to be thirty. Yes, hilarious, Brad. Hilarious. Thought thought the same thing, man. I can't believe I didn't say it to you. He moves like an old man. I, it's a credit to Orson Welles' movement because he moves like an old man, like De Niro is when he's trying to throw that stupid gun into the river. <laughs> so, all right, guys. Well, if there's a best scene, that must mean that there's a worst scene. Worst scene. What is it? Again, three, two, one. Anyone feeling good and, and nitpicky about things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have three pretty... It's nitpicky as hell, uh, but my three... Uh, even though I number three for me worst scene is even though I love the shot at the beginning with the no trespassing through the fence and you go back to it at the end I think it looks amazing the and it's 1941 and I, I'm sure his budget was limited on this the shot of the mansion in the background looks very fake it is I mean truthfully Chris we watched um, the Frankenstein movies and it looks more realistic in those movies than it does here. Wow, you think so? I do. I, I actually think they're comparable. Uh, I mean, definitely in Frankenstein, I think Bride of Frankenstein, the mansion we see at the beginning for Mary Shelley, looks more realistic than this one does. Mm. Uh, again, Interesting. it's nitpicky. It's 1941. 
I mean, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel to try to find something bad to say about this movie. So that's yeah, a lot I'm, of painted backdrops back then. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. But if I have to find something that when it came in the beginning of the movie, I was like, oh, that looks pretty fake. <laughs> uh, my number two is, again, makes sense for that whole newsreel at the beginning, like giving Ch- Charles Foster Kane's life. But it struck me as a it bothered me less once I re- remembered at the end, like once it cut out and was like, Oh, right. This is the newsreel. This is how they did it in the 1940s. But it, it was a, you know, a big exposition dump um, that also felt just, uh, it, it, it just felt too easy. And it felt like tonally completely off from the rest of the movie. I know it's a newsreel and it makes sense, but I had seen Citizen Kane probably within the last year or year and a half on a, uh, a plane flying back to LA. And I caught the second half of the movie and I hadn't seen it since college. And I was like, Oh, right. God, this movie's so good. And the dialogue's so good. And when that whole opening started, I was like, Oh, this is not how I remember this movie. And it just kind of took me out of it. It's not the movie's fault. That's how you give exposition. It struck me as something too, where you, again, probably didn't have the budget to do other things, to do it a different way. So you kind of had to make it into this whole newsreel. It it all makes sense. He died and, and everything, but again, nitpicking to find something. I will say I do like the gag at the end of the newsreel where it says the end and it like cuts out and you're like, oh, that's the whole movie. <laughs> and then it's, of course, then Citizen Kane like really begins. But I, I just think it's a funny little gag that the screen comes up after 12 and a half minutes and just says the end <laughs> before you get put into the into the editing room. Right. And it just went on for a while. like it's it does. It goes on for a while. And those Xanadu quotes and stuff don't really add too much for me. Maybe that's just a contemporary problem. But right. Totally agree. And then I, I think, Chris, I know we've discussed this. Uh, number one worst scene or just worst Take it. thing, Joseph Cotton as the old man. Uh, I mean, <laughs> for how well they do Orson Welles as an old makeup wise, his performance wise, Joseph Cotton just doesn't look like an old man, doesn't sell. I mean, he's kind of fun in the role, but when it's so well done on on the Orson Welles side, it just doesn't play on the Joseph Cotton side. And it it really is something where I I even said to you, Chris, like this is a movie that is considered one of the top five greatest movies of all time. Uh, But we just did, you know, having done Double Indemnity, having done Chinatown, having done Brick, those are three movies where I really struggled to find a worse scene. And I think those three movies are all like pretty damn near perfect. This is obviously the technological marvel that it is, so that puts it on its own level, but it just, none of those movies had the weakness in it that is this Joseph Cotton old man stuff, which just doesn't work. They slapped a mustache and a visor on him and kind of... And he just, and even his performance, like, it's not terrible, but when you see Wells doing all these little idios, the little idiosyncrasies that he adds to the role, and you a 25 year old and you're like yeah i believe this guy's a 50 year old as a 60 year old the joseph cotton thing just doesn't work yeah i mean you're right that's my number one is joseph cotton's old age makeup uh, and his performance he doesn't do much to de voice uh they do put the visor on him and sunglasses to begin with and i thought 
hey, okay, doing your best. And then he takes the sunglasses off and it's all out the window. And I'm just like, oh, that is not good makeup. Um, and also it's compounded with a really jarring bird squawk, like a cockatiel squawk of a transition of a cut. And it's just, I don't know. It's a weird one-two punch there. Um, number two for me, nitpicky, but choppy opening credits. When this movie started, when it's like cutting to Citizen Kane and the and the newsreel starts, it's real quick, real choppy. And like the music, it feels counterintuitive to the, to the grand music that's kind of playing. And then, yeah, number three for me is probably Mr. Carter's Gollum hair. The guy who originally owns the paper before... Charles Foster Kane buys it. He has these, he's like almost bald, but he has these long strands that come down the side of his face and they're stringy and sparse. And it just looks so disgusting the whole time he's on screen. And it's, I just couldn't help but think of Gollum from Lord of the Rings uh, with that hair. I it's can't just, unsee that now. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, was, it was distracting to me. So that's why it's my third worst scene. Josh, uh, destroy your high school thesis for us and give us three worst scenes, please. So, okay, number three for me is everything with the reporter, the reporters. Um, Mm. And functionally, like, it needs to be there. I understand why they do it. It's because Kane is an enigma. And by doing it this way, you know, you don't have to tell a linear story. You can jump right into the most interesting parts of it. But, you know, I don't, I mean, it's by design that you don't see the, the main reporter's face really um and you know uh but i do love that stylistic choice yeah but i mean those things are strictly functional to get you into what is interesting so just for that i I chose those moments um number two for me actually my top two are susan scenes and through through no fault no fault of of the actress at all um susan's vocal training where Charles Kane insists on sitting in with like, is, is he like an Italian caricature of a, of an opera teacher? Um, <laughs> yes. He's like, he she can't, no, she cannot sing, uh, you know, um, we already know she can't sing. We already know that she's not, you know, going to be a great star. We already know that, that Kane has sort of made a project out of her. And so I, I, bet, I guess I watched that scene and I wondered if it was cut, would you ever notice? And I'm not sure that you would. Nope. Yeah. Um, and then number one, it's when Susan and Kane are in the tent at their like their picnic that Charles forces her to go on. Mm-hmm. And they're towards and, the end of the movie. Yeah, towards the end of the movie. And they get into a fight. The issue that I had with that scene, and maybe this is 2020 looking at 1941, but she's portrayed. I mean, she's she's correct in the scene, but the portrayal, she's sort of shrill and a little bit one note. And it's very, uh, you never give me anything. Um, yeah, it's like Lena Lamont and singing in the rain almost. Like. A little, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. And um and actually, that scene is the one moment where I think you can sort of see the seams on uh, Orson Welles' old age makeup. Like, there, there's a moment where he, f- he flips out and the shadows are such that it's like, it's all, <laughs> next, all crinkly. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, this is such nitpicky stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that the Susan stuff, while obviously necessary to the story, is just not 
as interesting as so much of the other stuff that's going on with him. Um, right. And the second half, like even the scene you brought up before uh, in your best scenes, when he gets the mud spilled on him and he goes to her place, like that's all, that all works for me very well. But I, I do feel like particularly in the second half of this movie, when there's so many other things going on, we're still, you know, as, as viewers, if you don't know, don't know what Rosebud is, his relationship with her and all her singing and all that just isn't as important to me. Like, I just don't care that much. Right. And I was, you know, and even though, in interviews, Orson Welles insisted that she's not based on Marion Davies. Part of me wondered if so much real estate, you know, this character takes up so much real estate because at the time that would have been a very scandalous parallel to make. And you know what I mean? Yeah, but isn't this movie like the ultimate scandalous parallel with William Randolph Hearst? Well, for sure. But he, you know, he's yeah. the char- like, I well, guess I'm just saying, do you think that being as that's true, do you think he would have shied away from that with Marion Davies? No, I guess I guess what I'm saying is, is the parallel of Marion Davies more interesting if you live in 1941 than it is now? Uh, mm-hmm. gotcha, gotcha. Definitely. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. obviously it is. I mean, we can we can have we can play that as a parallel to other relationships that take place you know, currently, but even then, like, is that the most interesting thing? It's usually something we, you know, see on Twitter and we're like, oh, okay, that's happening. And, and just like keep scrolling through. Like, it's just, to me, that's just not as interesting. Okay, guys. Well, we clearly have a masterpiece on our hands. So uh, let's play our favorite podcast game and fuck it up a little bit, huh? (laughs) Perfect. That's right. It's time for Milking It, our favorite game to play on the podcast. We are going to roll out the big computer of Hollywood Ideas 2000 here in just a second. And it's going to we're going to fire it up, of course, plug it in, fire it up, turn it on, all that stuff. Let it warm up. And it's going to provide us with two pieces of information a piece. You're going to get a pitch uh, style or I guess pitch limit, which will be either be a elevator pitch, a water cooler pitch or a boardroom pitch allowing you either 30 seconds, one minute, or 90 seconds to get out a brand new movie, a title, and a quick summary of your second piece of information, which will be either a genre, prequel, sequel, actor, or director card. Something, a piece of information that you'll use uh, to take the characters, the plot points, whatever elements you see fit from Citizen Kane to rework them, remold them into a brand new film to put out there and make a billion more dollars for the studio system and hopefully maybe garner a little more than just one Oscar. So let's get the old old computer, the, the new old computer out here. All right. Oh, Josh, it looks like it has you up first with the elevator pitch. So you'll have 30 seconds to reimagine Citizen Kane as a Steven Spielberg film. Okay. Yeah. No stranger to Oscar noms, (laughs) no stranger to a large box office. And no pressure at all. Yeah. No pressure at all. Right. (laughs) One of the greatest movies of all time, directed by a different one of the greatest directors of all time. 
Yeah, I, I, I think uh, his completion of Stanley Kubrick's AI will be very instructive here. I'm just going to look to the last half hour of that movie. and. <laughs> well, you'll have 30 seconds to cement your place in history, Josh. Okay. Uh, Brad, you're, you'll be next up with the water cooler pitch. One American Minute for you. Okay. And, oh, right, this is interesting. You're going to remake Citizen Kane starring Denzel Washington. Oh, my favorite actor. Is he your favorite actor? Denzel? Yeah. yeah. N- number one, hands down. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, awesome. it, it's It's been different at different times, but now at this point in my life, I have a hard time saying it's anybody but him. Yeah. Well, a wonderful opportunity to work with him. Uh, of course, when you do get an actor card, he does not have to necessarily be the main character, like meeting Charles Foster Kane. You can put him in another part, but then the movie would have to focus on his character. Got it. So, And that leaves me with the boardroom pitch. A full 90 seconds to get out the, <laughs> the sequel to Citizen Kane. So that should be also no pressure at all. Should be easy to do. None whatsoever. A sequel where the main character's dead at the end of the first one? No problem. <laughs> We're going to take a few minutes and we'll be right back once we gather our thoughts with our milk in it. And we're back. All right, guys. Are you ready to milk Citizen Kane for all it's worth? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Okay. Josh, we're starting with you at the elevator pitch. Uh, Steven Spielberg now directing the Orson Welles classic. Um, The elevator doors are closing. And go ahead. Okay. Meet Charlie Kane. He's a wealthy newspaper mogul who seems to have it all. But after his wife and son perish in a terrible car accident, he goes on a downward spiral. What's the point in breaking the news when the only thing really broken is his heart? But then one day he meets an opera singer who brings the music back into his life. With her help, he sets out to build Xanadu, a monument to his late family, his wife and son. And he might just find the child inside. Tom Hanks stars in Charlie. Uh, Terrific. Wow. So good. (laughs) so spielberg charlie is such a good title with an exclamation point preferably (laughs) yeah good oh perfect Uh, all right brad it's gonna be hard to top oh i won't top it um (laughs) all right water cooler pitch one american minute starts in three two one so if you're making Citizen Kane with Denzel Washington. He has to play Charles Foster Kane, which then makes me want to put Orson Welles into the Leland role. And as much, no disrespect to Joseph Cotton, but then that fixes the problem of him looking like the old man. Cause then you just give Kane the same, you give Orson Welles the same makeup and we're good to go. So this version follows Kane as Denzel Washington is Kane as a man who's actually worked his way up to his fortune rather than it being given to him. So his success feels more earned. And in this film, Rosebud isn't a sled and is instead a baby blanket. His mother knitted him that had a a little rose in the corner of it. And we follow his rise to the presidency, which he eventually loses and plays out, you know, pretty much the same way because he is found to have been in a scandal in the movie, Kane Rising. Kane Rising. All right. Not too bad. 
I'll show you to see that. I would absolutely love to see a Denzel Washington Orson Welles movie. Yeah. <laughs> My whole basis of it, I was like, I just want Denzel playing Kane, and I want Orson Welles directing it and in the movie with him. That's all I yeah. care about. Yeah. I, 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 as much as I don't want to take Walken out of it, I'd love to see Orson Welles in the Walken role in Man on Fire. Oh. Like old Orson Welles in that, like once he gets like older. Oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay, guys. It's uh, oof. might have gone in the wrong order here because that's my boardroom pitch for 90 seconds for the sequel. So here we go. Let's see if I can uh, close this out strong. Can't wait. Pretty much we, we pick up right where we left off. Charles Foster Kane is dead and the world is at peak interest as to what's going to happen to his fortune. Uh, a woman comes forward with a young boy claiming that he is the illegitimate love child of Charles Foster Kane. After some legal battles, it's determined that the child is in fact Charles's only living heir and inherits all of Xanadu. Now, uh, the movie we're going to tell really focuses on him growing up um, with the wealth and excess, all the stuff they kind of breeze over in the original Citizen Kane. We're going to get into some like some fun, Richie Rich type shit. And we're also going to show the darker side where we show Charles Jr.'s uh, values that he's already had come into question and how they're manipulated under certain circumstances because of his wealth and newfound privilege. Uh, the silver spoon has turned to gold in Raising Cane. Seriously? Raising Cane? Raising Cane, yeah. I like it. Do you know I the like fact that there's actually a movie called Raising Cane? It's a Lithgow movie. Yes, it is. Right? I think it's yeah. C-A-I-N. Yeah, and this is K-A-N-E. Yes, so that's great. I mean, it was better than Citizen Kane 2, Son of Kane. <laughs> <laughs> was it I though? like. I like that yeah. you, you go a little the Adonis Creed route, too. Which Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, see, yeah, Leland can come in and, like, try to steer him the right way and be a, a father figure. I'll do anything to get Joseph Cotton in the movie. I love that dude. <laughs> you'll oh, you'll no. you'll dig him up. <laughs> <laughs> just like just get Noah Emmerich and like say you're Joseph Cotton now. It's uh, not yeah. bad. Noah Emmerich is kind bad. of a it's a good poor man's Joseph Cotton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, guys, I think we just sold three more movies uh, to the studio system. Congratulations, every one of you, for making a big Hollywood deal today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And we only have one more segment left, and that is. Brad Davis, you just watched uh, Citizen Kane. I did. What are you going to do next? I'm actually going to go back and watch, especially before watching Mank, rewatch RKO 281, which is mm. the H. It was an HBO original movie starring Liev Schreiber as Orson Welles and him trying to make citizen kane you've told me about this movie before i totally forgot about it. it it's i had it's i would guess that movie came i should have looked it up like late 90s early probably late 90s and i haven't seen it since then and i think it would be very interesting now seeing citizen kane eventually going to see mank and having adding that movie to the mix it'll be very interesting to see kind of the mix of what all the information we get about the making of citizen kane is so i'm actually very excited to go back and rewatch that uh, released in the great movie year of 1999. Ah, okay. Late 90s. I was right. Josh Green, you just watched Citizen Kane for the 11th time. <laughs> what are you going to do next? 
Uh, I'll probably watch South Park episodes that I've seen 20 times. <laughs> um, yeah, that's been my latest quarantine binge. So, I'll, you know, revisiting those things. Uh, I think I'm also going to instruct everybody to, you know, check me out on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> wings number four wheels with a Z. <laughs> uh, and yeah. my parlor isn't set up yet, but when it is, I'll be sure to let you guys know. Ooh. I will second that Twitter follow. You're you're a very fun Twitter follow. I agree. Yeah. Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Chris Maxwell, you just watched Citizen Kane. What are you going to do next? Uh, so much now, actually. I re- I'm really going to try to watch that RKO 281. Uh, that's I just added that because I also want to watch The Magnificent Ambersons, the movie Orson Welles makes after this, which I have never seen before. It's one of my few Wells blind spots at this point. I'm also going to recommend the Simpsons episode with Bobo and Mr. Burns. It's so good. And if you actually want more Orson Welles content, I will recommend the documentary, the Netflix documentary, uh, The Love Me When I'm Dead. It was released in tandem with Orson Welles' final film, The Other Side of the Wind, which I have problems with. But the documentary is an outstanding look at Orson Welles. And it's almost like a... Citizen Kane to Orson Welles. It's, you know, it, it looks back on his life and how he got so big and kind of, you know, fell to ruin for a little bit when new when new Hollywood took over. And it's, it's really interesting. It's a great doc. Well, guys, that's it for the show. Josh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Great to talk about an American classic with you. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. And I'm glad you guys are back. Oh, thank you so much. And remember to check us out next week for uh, the part two of this little double feature, we're going to do Social Network, David Fincher's potential masterpiece. We'll find out after a revisit. Brad, thank you as always, my friend. My pleasure, buddy. Anything to plug? At BD Always GP on Twitter and Instagram. And please listen to Death at Sunset. That's right. Episode three out. No, episode four out this Friday. Episode four out this Friday. The completion of the case out this Friday. Please listen. Please subscribe to Death at Sunset. Uh, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean so, so much to us. Uh, it's a wonderful case. We, Brad and I put so much work into it with so many other talented people. We would love for you to listen to that. And that is it. All right, guys. We love you so much. Goodbye. High on Film is a Maxwell Davis Productions podcast. For more information, follow at High on Film on Twitter and Instagram, or email the show at thehighonfilmshow at gmail.com. Original music by Zach Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Carly Walsh for lending her voice to this episode.